Ladies, gents, and germaphobes, I want to welcome you to season four of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. In 2019, I wrote a book to exercise the demons I'd picked up over a long decade of owning, brewing, and operating a brewery in Texas with my beautiful wife. That book is the same name as this podcast, and you really should pick it up on Amazon. Even brewers and bartenders can afford 18 bucks. What you're about to put in your ears is the only podcast that tells the truth in craft beer. I interview dead and dying breweries to learn what went wrong. I talk with breweries I think have a unique position in the marketplace to find out what they did right. I talk to distributors because they're a big part of the worst part of this industry. And I'm even sticking a microphone in the faces of cider, spirits, and mead makers. And yes, I do talk a lot of shit and piss off more than a few people in this industry. But I'm happy to be the crap beer pariah, trademark, because I'm here for one reason and one reason only, to make you better in your careers. My guests and I want happiness and financial success for each of you. We want you to avoid the mistakes we made. And since no one else has the stones to share how to do that with you, it has fallen to us. And trust me, we are up to the task. So sit back, listen in, and let us teach you how not to start a damn brewery. There were a lot of things that I did wrong in there that seemed like they were right at the time. I, I can't come at this from a bitter perspective. They said, cheer up, things can get worse, so I cheered up and things got worse. Mike Tatar is creative motherfucker. Whatever he did, and whichever career in which he did it, he was gonna throw passion, fire, and grit every place he went. Like many of us who are slaves to our creativity, he worked with a mix of attention to detail and a grip it and rip it philosophy that took him right to the edge of innovation. When he opened his brewery in Washington State, he quickly found out that he was going to need every single one of his unique talents to fight for profitability in this industry against rising expenses, city permitting, distribution, the beer drinkers in his local market, liquor laws, and his partners. Of course, even a worldwide pandemic. For part of his story, he lost his money, his brewery, his friend, and even his wife. But now, he's on to the next chapter, and while we're not sure where the path leads, he knows he's got the experience and tenacity to walk it with confidence. So sit back and listen to the story of the rise and fall of Spokane, Washington's Hidden Mother Brewery. Are you thinking about paying retail for your brewery equipment? Well, since we all came and learned how to make good decisions, I'm going to hit you with some knowledge. So pay close attention. BrewBids is the only badass online marketplace to buy and sell new and used equipment. Maybe you're in the market to buy because you learned how to open a brewery the right way and know that overspending can be fatal. Maybe you're expanding up or down and you know that stainless steel lasts forever, so it's really even better than new. Or maybe you're a guest of the show and you need a place to liquidate all your brewery equipment before the bank comes in and takes it. Doesn't matter. Each of you should be logging on to brewbiz.com right now, creating your account and connecting with the equipment you need. Get smart, get brewbids, and get busy making beer. All right, Mike, I want to thank you for sharing. Thanks for talking. And thanks, most of all, for giving a piney and hoppy fuck about helping everyone be better in their career today. So thanks. Welcome to the show. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Kelly. Appreciate it. Yeah. So I'm uniquely interested to hear kind of the whole story behind Hidden Mother and what happened. But first of all, you're a unique dude. Give me a little bit of the history of like, uh, who were you when you were a kid? What was your first career? What were, who are you? Yeah, man, it's um, pretty crazy. I grew up in a family of 10 kids as the third oldest. We moved around a lot growing up. Athletics were really always the focus when I was younger. That ended up going pretty well. Ended up in boarding schools and stuff during high school. And when I turned 18, got sponsored by a bike team and moved and lived in a bike shop and did that stuff for about five years. All over the place, rode for a bunch of companies and teams and shifted to boxing right after that. Boxed for about six years out of Bay Area. So everything was really focused on athletics and sort of 
type of discipline. While doing that, I was at a bakery for about 12 years working and running a lot of the operations. And that's really what sparked the interest in cultivating yeast and kind of getting those bugs going. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of where, where the kick into the beer industry happened. It was sort of intermingled with all these things. But Did you have a favorite there, there's, brewery at the time or anybody over there in the Bay Area that you were into? Favorite brewery at the time at that point was Drake's. Um, I love Drake's Brewing out of San Leandro. They do some really fun, funky, they're, they're just really cool people to deal with. I ended up doing a collaboration with them a couple years ago and really fun team to deal with. I relocated back inland northwest 2013, so a lot's changed in that area. I know um, the Rare Barrel was kicking in. At the point that I left, they were building out. They hadn't quite opened their doors. Yeah, I mean, I, I was really into the beer scene down there. At that point, still just a crazy home brewer. I was doing like 60 gallons a week out of my house for about four years there. So um, really networking the smaller scale home brewer stuff. That's kind of where it, where I kicked in. But I would jump on the commercial systems, any any opportunity I had just to get the experience. And doing that, um, networked with a lot of the brewers in the Bay Area. When did you know you were going to do a, your own brewery? Like, what was, how did that kind of come oh, about? Oh, man, that be about the first batch I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of knew it before I started brewing. Um, there are so many similarities to baking. I like beer more than I like bread. So I kind of went that direction. I, I figured it was going to be something that I could transfer a lot of the skills and baseline, I guess, talents that were being built in the baking industry. And uh, I like the idea of having a product that didn't go bad overnight. You had a bunch of Dale bread where if a rainstorm came in, you had eight farmer's markets that you were loading up for. You didn't have a bunch of donations that had to go out the door. It was just a lot more margin for error. Okay. Having a cake that you can stick in the fridge. And I, I love making beer also. Immediately clicked and I was all over it, just doing some really crazy concepts and tackling projects. I mean, like we did a beer off one block in Berkeley, California, where we used everything except for the grain off of that one block. Just a lot of cabal concepts really got gotten the cultivation yeast and doing that so where did you get the inspiration for that because obviously that that's approach to beer that style of brewing is esoteric mm -hmm. at best unique and rare however you want to say it but what, what were you inspired by other breweries or did you take it from another industry or are you just truly a, a unique and esoteric guy at your core i think there's there's a combination of a lot of that i've come up with a lot of crazy concepts and inventions on my own a lot of that was the place that i was working at that point it's called the phoenix pastaficio down in Berkeley. We did a lot of really crazy stuff, but it was a lot of off the wall things in the, in the culinary, that whole art. Mm -hmm. But just the people I was surrounded by, a lot of mushroom foragers, a lot of people that were in the beer world, all that. And there was just a lot of ways to implement into the art of brewing. The guy who taught me how to brew, his name is Dylan. He brewed for a few breweries down in the Bay Area. He definitely was inspirational. A lot of these concepts right out of the gates. I hit it really full throttle. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So within about six or seven, seven weeks of brewing, I was already working on a gravity fed system and got to the point where within like four or five months, I was producing more homebrew than anyone else in the Bay Area. And um, I installed 11 taps in the, my garage, basically ran a little tap house out of out of that thing in the cul-de-sac in East Oakland. And uh, Mondays, I'd usually do eight different batches and had, yeah, pretty much average of 60 gallons a week flowing through that thing. And was this um, because you knew you wanted to do a brewery, so you were doing it as an experimental, like trying out flavor, exactly. getting feedback and that kind of thing? Well, 100%. There wasn't, I don't think I, re I maybe repeated one or two recipes in the course of that five years. It was all basically like what, what I can apply to when I did go 
professional with it and jump onto a larger scale, just how to blow things up and scale up. You know, it's, it's easier to swallow screwing up on an experimental beer at a small scale mm-hmm. than having to dump a bunch of barrels, which is, you know, that's only happened once or twice in my professional career. Really? Just where got a little bit too funky and it was like, ah, oh, there's not a way to really salvage this. And it just doesn't make sense to hold it. There's no direction. Yep. Yeah. I always had to budget about 10% of mine that was like, nah, eh, something always went wrong or just off or had some weird phenols to it. There's a lot of different methods. When I was talking to the people down at Crux and Bend, Oregon, the lady who was running that barrel program at that point, she would scale, basically rate her barrels on a scale of one to 10 mm-hmm. and only dump things that hit a one. The rest you would blend out. That's a pretty pretty decent way of doing it. You really can stretch a lot of things and, and use them as notes, even if they're not super great on their own. With the Hidden Mother, at least, I didn't quite, get to that point because a lot of the barrels that I had going would have been coming into fruition at this point. Like they were, really? you know, three year concepts and COVID hit just completely, completely racked. I'll have to go and pull some nails and see how those things are doing. Even though I can't really do anything with them. Well, I, I plan to get into that in uh, the third segment a little bit more, but you still have these barrels yep. aging? I do. All right. We're going to come back to that. I'm, I'm going to hit that. Yeah, for sure. Let's sure. talk more about how this, how this gets started. So I, on a scale, every home brewer basically did what you did, but I have never heard of anyone doing it at the level that you did it. So looking mm. back, what did the 11 taps you said that was in your garage, what did that project teach you? Like, what did you learn from that that you took into the Hidden Mother? And looking back, would you have done anything different in the 60 gallons a week of homebrew you're making? Yeah, um, I would have started working on licensing a lot sooner. <laughs> um, that took forever. From the homebrew aspect, there's a couple things that were kind of equipment-based that I would have, looking back, been more efficient with. Mm-hmm. But honestly, that scale that I was doing and the, the efficiencies that I was pulling and the rate that I was pulling out all that beer, there wasn't too much that I could find to there's recipe work obviously for anyone they they would need to do that there's always a place to improve gotten really really innovative with recirculating water for cooling out of 50 gallon barrels trying to run some solar stuff that was just for chilling from just really energy efficient crazy ideas that you know in in retrospect they were really really extremely good ideas that were being applied and i'm sure i could fine tune them but they're not necessarily something that i would change there was a lot of just organic growth in that whole process and i've always been one of those people that's completely willing to learn from whatever's in front of me i'm never really content with where i'm at even if it seems to be working really really efficiently and awesome like i don't look at something and always have to fix it but if something comes in looks like it could be a better concept i'll absolutely explore that anytime regardless of how it came to me or where it came from because there's always places you can improve sure. so um going back to the home building, um i probably would have stopped using carboys because dealing with 12 carboys on a weekly basis and the constant rotation lifting and shaking and siphoning just different yeah everything like there's a lot more innovative ways from a homebrew direction that you at this point when i look at the amount of time that i used on that it could have been more efficient i could have started taking oxygen tanks cutting them up and turning them into larger fermenters that i could do one full batch i could have done a b c or d you know a lot of a lot of different concepts that are there the nice thing about doing everything in smaller batches and splitting everything was i got a lot more focus on the yeast profiles in different directions and fermentation and kind of how the microbes would work. And I could side to side a lot of things in these batches and really see exactly where the difference was. Okay. Because a lot of things were uniform. Like if you're fermenting everything side to side, you know the temperature is the same, you know that you have the same gravities and you just do different tweaks, whether it's, you know, yeast blending or pitching on top of something that's fermenting. At the end of the day, you have 
two identical samples right next to each other because they came from the same the same batch and you can really see exactly what made the difference i think that was really one of the one of the super positive learning curves that i could bring into the professional world and um i applied it on a regular basis especially with my project the hidden mother the focus was a lot more on just being consistently good rather than consistently the same and my sort of statistic that i took on that was um we were getting into that rotation nation where every tap handle was rotating unless it was one of the big boys who was either paying incentives or they had a permanent handle because they just a Miller Coors brand or whatever where a distributor had a contract or something. I figured that statistically, if you had a quality product all the time and someone had the brand recognition of your handle or whatever it is, whatever touch point they can recognize and they know that they associated a quality, whether it was true to style or something innovative, but it was beer first and always awesome. Your statistic of running on rotating handles more often went up significantly. It's no longer just a brand of beer. It's the brand identity that people are chasing. It's a much, much smaller scale of sort of what Russian River has where where Vinny can throw a handle anywhere just because of that brand recognition and sort of the scarcity, people jump on it right away. Or at least willing to try it. Like they'll give it a chance. Yep, yeah. exactly. And, and normally you're, you're obviously not going to convert someone generally in styles if they're opposed to a certain style. Like I, I'm not a fan of hazy IPAs. I'll try a taste to want to know if someone knew what they were doing, if they, if they understood the chemistry on it, if they understood flavor profiles. I, I can appreciate that. Chances are I'm not going to jump on the untapped and rate it. <laughs> it's not like I'm taking these samples so I can say I did. It's something that I can appreciate. The chance of me ordering that beer is super slim, pretty much never, because it's just a style I'm not into. Just the same way that you don't look to convert someone on on their baselines of what they're looking for. But if they do like, say, a smoked porter, they like a Imperial Russian stout or something along those lines. If they know that your brand puts out quality product all the time, if they see that you have one on tap, they're going to go for it just because of that brand identity. They don't necessarily even need need a taster to know that it's going to be decent. That's sort of where the consistently being good rather than consistently the same was always sort of the target was people always want something new. Give them that. Give them something quality. Give them something that has a little tweak to it where they can taste it and know that it's a little bit different than the last time they had it. And yeah, you get a small percentage of people that really wanted the exact same thing. That's why you don't tweak it that far. But the chance of them remembering all the ins and outs of the beer and them having it a year later and tasting that difference in just a series of fine tweaks that's another one that's just super small it's a small percentage just from a sales perspective it was always able to maintain handles we had 264 accounts when i closed the doors here that i was servicing regularly when i self-distributing as over 160 just out of my van <laughs> and i was able to maintain a lot of those handles and consistently service them and it was just constant production just because i was on a smaller scale constantly driving new beer in the system so yeah how did you, from the beginning, if that was going to be your plan, how did the name, how did the tagline, like what what was the focus on what you were going to build specifically to make it consistently good, not consistently consistent? Yeah, that was a, I mean, the name and all that, that all came a bit later. This was a really like a 12-year project for me. Um, I sold my house and I took all the money that I had from that and I put it in the materials and a buddy and, and I fabricated the whole system. It's about a six and a half barrel system. Mm-hmm. Built that whole thing over the course of about two years, two and a half years. While doing that, I relocated up to the Spokane, Washington area and I got onto some unused acreage that my folks had. And my goal is shooting for full estate here. So everything was focused on sort of regeneration, doing everything right, setting sort of a standard on how you can be really resourceful and good at the same time rather than making it fashion statement 
actually doing this stuff and making it really good, but really doing it for the satisfaction of the art. It wasn't like I wanted to do all these differences to make a point or make these changes. I would really run off inspiration in the moment. A lot of times when I was growing, and that's when a lot of these tweaks would come in. And then mm. there were things like, you know, the pine tree beer, mushroom beers, or any of these crazy infusions, you know, I might taste a pepper and it's like, oh, there's a way that you could implement this into, into a recipe. Those are a little more preconceived and that's where the experience doing so many different batches and so many different adjuncts at certain points really came into play in the commercial world. But it wasn't like I was running around trying to show how different we were. It just sort of organically happened. It was it was pretty effortless. And it's just what it was. People were like, oh, those it was an experimental brewery and people thought that we were really, really freaking crazy people, but they really loved the product at the same time. I mean those if you manipulate them right, are really, really positive, positive, positive sales points. Yeah. So why Spokane? Is it because you had the family land or was there some reason that you needed to make this style of brewery in that area of the country? Well, there was a few factors on that. At that point, I had my second child. So family resource was one of the main things. The other main thing was um, cost down in the Bay Area. <laughs> doing just a small project is millions of dollars just considering the cost of living, the cost of any commercial real estate. It's just so dang expensive down there. I wanted to avoid all the traps that I fell into initially, which was partnerships, having, you know, a ton of meetings and a bunch of people on the board that you have to deal with and all that. So I, I came up here to do it solo, which in retrospect, and especially looking at, you know, the, the whole point of the show, that is a strong point that I would stick to. It. It's one thing if you have a lot of cash in the bank that's your own and you're ready for an expansion and drafting up, you know, a um, operating agreement that really is in your favor because you have more than just cash. You have a brewery and you have the reputation that you've built. That gives you a strong arm and that is a perfect time, sure, for bringing in partners or investors or whatever. There's a lot of bad assumptions that people make, me included, in drawing in these partnerships too early in undervaluing the company that, that you're building and not seeing what the potential and, and what the value is of what you have in your pocket at that point. Yeah, well, it's hard because at the same time, when you first start the brewery up, it's all perceived value. It's all possible. Mm-hmm. Potentially, there's going to be its future earnings, right? So PE yep. based on future earnings. And then obviously, that works. And we do that in industries all over the place. But that's a, that's a tough spot to be in. Like, oh, it's worth... What did, what did uh, San Diego, modern times, they were valued at like yep. 180 million and then six months later they were valued at 15? Like, you know, it's... Yeah, what I found with a lot of this, and it's really unfortunate, is your liquidation value is pretty much your value mm-hmm. in this industry. Looking at this stuff, if I were to do it right this second, especially with sort of how hot the beer industry has been the last 10 years and how many are popping up, I wouldn't come at it with a goal of this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life, this particular project. I would use the first one or two to generate income by building something that has a reputation and selling it off as soon as there's a top dollar I can make on it and put it into the next project and just keep building until the point that people are following your name as a brewer rather than the brand name. Yeah, right. Right now, in just in the last 10 years, the amount of shifts to neighborhood pubs that have a brew system in them being the successful route because everyone has been, been learning the hard way on how difficult distribution is. And if you're not hitting a 3,000 barrel mark annually, you're losing money the whole time that you're building and just the cost in it. If you look at like your states, doesn't matter what state you're in. If you look at the the state's production logs of all the breweries, it goes from, you know, thousands and thousands of barrels that you see on every shelf in all the stores, convenience stores, your independent seed stores. You see those and then all of a sudden it jumps down to a couple breweries that 
for one to 2,000 barrels that can service some local market, maybe one or two pop shops or beer stores, you know, out of their area. But then it drops down to like 300 barrels. Mm-hmm. And that's like the majority of breweries that are doing super, super small tap rooms around their town, but servicing their tap room because it's the most money per ounce. Yeah. And it's just sort of across the board like the to hit distribution properly it's so hard to keep your cost down just because the cost of infrastructure and material well and you pretty much have to then have a distributor to be able to get the scale and then once you do that you knock 30 percent off your retail value right away yep. it makes it tough for sure They're like navigating this market right now getting a good contract with a distributor is really difficult it's really hard to put minimums because they can walk around to the next brewery really or drop in the bucket that it just requires so much to, to get a good contract so much attention and massaging to keep the reps happy you know a lot of these books that these distributors have 50 if not over 100 breweries that they can represent and they have the option to if you're not taking all the reps out for beers and doing anything to create incentives you're just someone that's sort of the convenience where if you go into a a shop and you make a sale as someone from the brewery awesome it's the importance of having a rep then it's on that buyer to remember to order from the particular rep to get that beer unless you as the brewery owner the rep follow up with that distributor. There's so many hoops to jump through. So really putting minimums is the goal when you go to a distributor because that creates incentive for them to make the sales. Otherwise it's breach contract. Mm -hmm. It can be a really tricky game and cost a lot. So I would say, you know, losing 30% is pretty generous to yourself. I think you end up losing a lot more after you look at bringing in more staff, all the swag and POS that you have to put out there to promote the brand, you, you, your margin goes to very, very small, if not costing you money until you hit a certain point where like yeah. permanent spots in grocery stores or anything in that direction. Which is harder and harder to hit because there's some guy right behind you doing that incentive and trying their best to take that space because they just oh. open. And so uh, as the industry- Oh, and you, when you look at, we were doing everything right prior to COVID to have the distribution side of this taken care of. The, the amount, the shelves have changed and the focus of breweries has changed since COVID hit is just- insane it's like a whole a whole different industry at this point point. and fortunately i don't yep. believe that it's going back well i want to talk yeah. a little bit about like kind of how you built the brewery up and what sure. you did have as far as course let's take a super quick break and we'll be right back you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out that's how i feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without accubrew so the industry can be so much better by just being digital AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those, how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to accubrew.io, Follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, welcome back. So at this point, you, you've you been trying out different beers, home brewing. You've got the whole plan, 12 years in the making. You've been building your own shit. You move up to Spokane. How did you finally get open? Like, What was the first step of getting it all put together? Did you... Did you get a bank loan? Did you, were you able to do it with all your own cash? Yeah, I don't know if I did it the right or wrong way on this one because it completely depends on, on model. I know that in my particular instance, I did it wrong because I tried to tackle distribution with the six 
six barrel system. Mm. It was just me though. So there is potential income on that. Just a lot of work. And uh, I didn't even have a tasting room at that point. So that's a big mistake. You always want a tasting room, at least for the sake of getting your name out there. The initial plan was to make beer straight to distribution. Yep. And that's what I was doing. So on, on that property, we're at the 2,500 hop plants that I put in. I, I built off of the side of a barn and enclosed sort of a hangar where you would park like your boat or something for the winter. I enclosed that and put in four drains and built out a brewery in that whole section. It was about 14 feet by 48 feet. And it's through fermenters in there, bright tanks, the system, and did this all out of a barn, basically. Put a walk-in refrigerator out of the back and cut some holes and walls. It was a lot of labor. I, I built that whole place out with a 25-year-old kid at that point. <laughs> did that over the course of the summer. Coming up here and kind of getting the thing all going, I used any of the cash that I had. There wasn't much excess from buying all the materials to build the system. Mm-hmm. So I, I worked full-time also, and I just stayed in the beer industry. I was brewing for a brewery out of Pullman, Washington. Um, I ran a tap house for about three years. It would basically work around the clock. Anytime I was off, I was working on this project. I lived in the brewery for a while, just building stuff out. and would just stay there and really just a lot of labor. In retrospect, probably would have been smarter to get an SBA or small business loan and pay someone to do it just to get this thing done and open. Wasn't the route I took going. Not really any regrets in that sense with that. If anything ever went wrong, I could problem solve it and fix it super fast. And everything was made in a way that completely made sense where if something needed to change, it was really, really easy to isolate where an issue was and and fix it however it needed to be. In that sense, it was awesome. It just wasn't the most efficient. In terms of time, it could have been faster with a few more hands of paid labor. And I did get really efficient with my work. Like I was able to get stuff done extremely fast and well. I don't know. Just one of the one of the things I took away from that is only really rich people can afford to buy cheap tools because they end up replacing them all the time. So uh, just putting in that initial investment, making sure things were done right, and having the right equipment to do it was just so important. Obviously, you were building the brewery. What were you planning to do with packaging? Initially, I wanted to do 100% barrel-aged beers. Working on building two cool ships, one of them into a trailer with a retractable ceiling where I could change out the staves on the top, like the rafters. Mm-hmm. And I could inoculate them with whatever microbes I liked, whatever beers I liked if I had something. Put those back in, drive it out to wherever I liked the wild beast. It was basically a cool ship with a clip top where you could, you could move it around and then the retractable ceiling was... With the idea that when you pop that thing open and open up the side rafters, it was kind of like a horse trailer that got shifted. Those upper windows would create enough wind and the steam coming off that cool ship, if you retracted down lower, would expand that wood and you'd get a lot more more microbes dropping in from whatever you inoculated the ceiling panels with. And so it was just... Just a really sweet little setup. That was the goal initially was was only sticking to barrel-aged beers and really focusing on wild beers whenever I could. The reason why that shifted was I, I needed to get a fermenter just for blending in beers at some point. And with my experience down at Paradise Creek, I had already established quite a name around at least the Spokane area. So I needed something to put out into the market. I also needed to make sure that there was cash flow going through and make, make this thing viable before sticking hundreds of barrels into a shop and waiting for them. So, so it just we, we needed to get something out there. I needed to get stuff moving. So I, I was running off three fermenters. I had two seven barrel fermenters and a fifteen barrel fermenter. So I double batch six and a half barrel batches in that fifteen and basically yield out 
you know, six and a half to seven barrels on those seven barrel converters. And I ran at like a 93% production rate on that. Right when those beers were ready, as I was emptying them into a bright tank, I already had a beer brewing and it was only about a two to three hour gap where that thing was CIP'd and emptied. So it was a constantly moving machine. I was was able, able to stay on top of that. And everything was built built in a pretty efficient fashion, meaning it was easy to multitask in that small space. And there was never a point where you were tripping over yourself because everything was really streamlined on it. What was the plan to use the clean fermenter for? Was there a specific beer that you wanted to have, like a flagship, or it was just going to be anything clean, a variety of different things? Yeah, that was um, mainly just to have the ability to make a clean beer if you wanted. Then if you needed to blend in anything for yield or adding the mixed culture, that was that was kind of the top. So you were going to do both mixed culture and yeah. culture with the fermenters? Okay. Obviously, there's uh, different opinions in the market of whether that's possible. Did you ever have any issues yeah. with cross-contamination? I didn't have any issues with cross-contamination. You have to watch your gaskets. You know, there's there are multiple opinions. There's some people that are absolutely anti and it really, it depends on what you're doing. Um, most of the beers that you're putting through a seven-barrel fermenter are gone within weeks of being packaged. So mm-hmm. any of the long-term things that would happen in there, possibly. I, I mean, I never saw anything happen. If you change out your gaskets, you, you're dealing with stainless. If you have heat and you have caustic, you're, you're going to, you can clean a tank. I know I, I talked to Jeff at Jester King before I went into that route. He has the same sort of opinion that I have going in between wild ferments or anything controlled. And I, I'm not sure if he's had too many issues or not, but I never ran into any problems. That being said, that particular spot we ramped up to using those tanks so much for clean beers that I didn't get, I, I didn't have too many opportunities to cross contaminate because those tanks were always in use. Really? I've used the tanks for every style of beer and I haven't run into problems of cross contaminate, I guess. I have isolated gaskets, so okay. hoses are another thing that you need to keep an eye on, switching out your hoses if you're using wild beers versus something clean. I think it depends a lot on the packaging side of it, too, that you know when you're kegging, that's yep. usually a closed system, but whenever you're canning or bottling, there's always some sure. oxygen uptick. And if that beer is yep. going to travel three states away at room temperature on a truck, you're probably in deep shit if it's a Pilsner. But so how did you package the beer? Was it bottles, cans, or kegs only? Again, it's like we such a short-lived, the Hidden Mother was only around for years a lot of this it was like you know two months out of the gate at the washington beer awards we placed in the top we were fourth overall and the brewery that i was brewing for prior to that placed third basically in the lineup of how how busy the stands were and chase after breweries so to me that was like oh man we got to look at doing an expansion immediately we have enough demand and there was enough anticipation branded and people were loving the beers they were being really well received. I moved right into the mindset of distribution and a lot of the barrel program and all that stuff got put on the back burner and it got put more into the streamline. How do we get this going? And we keep all the barrel and the wild ferments and all that stuff in the back of our head. But if there's an opportunity right now, how do we take it? It shifted from you know trying to produce every single ingredient and doing full estate beers, which is really, really small. The goal is basically being able to do that for you know a month the two out of the year and then stick to all organic the rest of the year bringing stuff i brought in a lot of malts and stuff from, from europe we did stay all organic we never certified it shifted from that to still staying organic running two different facilities and all of a sudden we're blasting through multiple pallets a week of grain and that cost of organic was so dang high still stuck to organic kept paying off the years on it and then eventually when we started growing lower on money it was like, okay, things that are going into cans and going to grocery stores, let's pull the organic off of that and stick to organic in our, you know, six and a half barrel system. There were a lot of that, a lot of different, I guess, model changes. And know? that's kind of the danger of 
too many cooks in the kitchen, like where there's a vote on everything and you can't just stick to what the original artistic goal was. That was the trouble I ran into was bringing in investors for an expansion and bringing in outside funding where in the operating agreement, you know, we had really great conversations about how it wasn't transferable to equity, but when investors have money tied up in something, those conversations all of a sudden are forgotten and it needs to be really specified in their operating agreement. That's not how it works. And at the end of the day, because of COVID, and it's not getting the bailouts we needed. I went from ending numbers, I mean, 8% owner of a brewery that has 100% owner of. So I got literally screwed up out of a brewery completely due to the liquidation value, the cash put in, and bad partnership. So that's, that's one thing I've yeah, really, really more against on that. So quick question. You had mentioned earlier that you guys had done, you started off being organic and then had to make some changes based on cost structure. Do you know, like even broad stroke, like what the cost of organic was as far as like per, from a percentage perspective? The grain, it had got to the point where it was um, 40% more expensive, or sorry, about 80%. I haven't looked lately. I'm sure that the costs have all gone up in the same sort of ratio. I'm not sure what they're at right now, but it was costing me about pretty close to twice the amount to produce the same beer that's ticked all organic in raw ingredients. Did you have a plan at retail where you like having an organic sticker on it and then that because of that you would add a dollar or was there some way to monetize that at all for you? Yeah, so um, I didn't certify organic because I just think it's a racket. You shouldn't have to pay for doing something right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that whole thing. I looked into certifying just the amount of money that they want and Everyone just wants bureaucratic systems to, you know, they, they just throw their fingers in your pot. So I coined the term organically produced. I just did a drawing of a hop and we, we would stick that on everything. I never got in trouble with the TTE or FDA or anyone around using that. I know there are rules around using the word organic or whatever, but at the end of the day, we were using all organic ingredients. We could verify that. I could have gotten certified. I just didn't want to deal with paying people extra money to be monitored for absolutely no reason. So I just kind of gave him the finger and stuck to what I do, which is kind of stick to doing things right. The shift from going organic, that wasn't my decision. I got outmoded and I fought tooth and nail on it. Like, talk about a fucking piss off brewer. <laughs> that whole shift, it was like, oh man, it's killing me. Yeah, another lesson. So you said that yep. plan was to expand, go into distribution, go far and wide mm-hmm. based on success of the awards you had won. And so. Yep. What did that look like? You mentioned earlier that you were servicing 160 accounts out of your van. Was the plan initially uh, to go self-distro or were you already talking to distributors at this point? I, I knew that eventually with the direction that we were going, we'd need to go with the distributor. What I wanted to do was pick the right distributor and piss them off enough where they'd come to the table where they wanted us to be on the same team. We took enough of their handles, but did it in a way where it wasn't like, you know, they're, they're, the art of diplomacy. It's like... <laughs> Just doing it, you can still have beers with these people. That You know that they would do the same thing to you. Right. But, you know, if you isolate and you kind of get to the point where you're enough of a pain in the ass for them, they'll come to the table, the initial conversation, maybe even turn down the first contract so in your way because it's never going to be in your favor. And then it goes to the negotiations and all that. Like, it, it worked out. It wasn't like I was out there. I would take any handle I could. Obviously, you're never going to target your local breweries. You're never going to target, like, it's not a big ball competition on any of that stuff. But for the sake of getting a good good deal with the distributor I ended up with, I was more inclined to shoot for trying to get into, into lineups that they either had a lot of handles or if it was taking one to create incentive for them to, to bring me on as a brewery or to show that I work really well with their lineup. Prior to COVID, I was like, I think it was like 154 was the right number, I think. 
it was either 154 or 158 handles and that went to two due to all the shutdowns when they announced that all the bars and restaurants had to close everyone's sitting on a bunch of beer that they had bought because it was you know life as usual prior to that st patrick's day right around the corner everyone closes their doors and locks them seemed like months before they could even open their doors and do anything with it they went into walk-ins that had old beer and kept pouring it went down to two accounts rebuilding any kind of sales program was just a joke because there were so many restrictions in washington state so between all the shutdowns and all the different things that were happening to the small businesses everyone was dying to make these sales you had large breweries throwing out incentives every brewery rushed to try and get shelf space in any convenience store or any grocery store it just turned into total chaos everyone's trying to mobile can which really doesn't make you money either everyone's fighting for you know one or two skews that they're going to lose the second that they can't keep up with and there's a line of 50 people right behind them that started canning and targeting that thing so it, it just turned into a pretty crazy situation the fact that once i brought on the distributor because i still managed to hold handles and rebuilt it and got a lot of my handles back a lot of those rounds and bars closed when did you bring on the distributor at what point from COVID? a year and a half into COVID. okay so i rebuilt my I had more accounts and I opened up a ton of new accounts. And of all the restaurants and bars that were able to open in Spokane, I, I was on it probably like 90% of them. So I was hitting the street super, super hard and trying to make any sale. So it was really noticed. I talked to a lot of distributors about jumping into, into their book. The large distributors didn't bring on new breweries because of all the COVID setbacks. You know, I ended up in an Anheuser-Busch book. It was a King Distributing up here, which they did, they did awesome for me. There were only a few smaller breweries in there. And because of that, the craft side of their book got a lot of attention. But it was it was really a headache just trying to get the right distributor and figure out a way that worked. They brought us up to like over 260 accounts by the end. So it helped with a lot of introductions. It still required a lot of, of hitting the streets and, and making sales. So like I, I had a rep pretty much the whole time. And I was also double-heading and making sales as well. So the initial plan out of the gates was you were going to sort of build the market up so that you had some power when negotiating with distributors. And you had mentioned that you were going to turn down the first contract. Did you do that? Yeah, I did. It took about a year to come back to the table with him. But that was how I figured out who I wanted to work with was, you know, they just wanted to rush a contract really fast to sign here and then we're good to go. And it's like, what are we going to negotiate? And they're like, what do you mean to go? This is pretty run of the mill. Everyone signs it. It's like, wait a second. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so on. I said, no, that sounds like an agreement. That's not really how this works. I got to review this. And they just, it took about a year to come back to the team. That's ultimately who I went with. And it turned out to be a really good contract. They were awesome to work with. I didn't get everything I wanted on there. That's part of negotiations. You meet in the middle on a lot of things. Somebody's got to be unhappy somewhat. In going back to the initial goal on this, the goal wasn't, I really look up to people like Bailbreaker, the companies in the Northwest that are killing it and they have this large production. That wasn't really my goal. My goal was way more in the sort of art world with it. You know, the Ale Apothecary out of Bend, Oregon, where the guy's doing a bunch of crazy stuff. He's only doing, what, 60 barrels a year. At that point, he was doing something like that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he's putting his bottles at 35 bucks a bottle at that point. Really unique stuff, really awesome stuff. And it's enough to pay the bills. So that was kind of what I was looking at with the target of doing full estate beers and running all those operations. So, the, again, the, the plan drastically changed after we 
hit the Washington Beer Awards, and like eight of the nine submissions ended up in the medal rounds, and the double-headed gold and silver in the experimental category, and it was just, just really, it just showed that there was a lot of demand for what we were doing. I think if anything, that should have been just a nice little pat on the shoulder at the end of the day. Keep doing what you're doing, not, oh, sweet, let's chase this because it tastes really good, like, awesome, then all of a sudden you're $700,000 in the debt because you need to do expansion, you know, build out another place, whether it's, it just ends up being the shiny toy you really want, but it really wasn't worth it. Let's, uh, cool. let's actually get into that. Let's take a quick break first. And sure. I want to hear about where it turned and, and obviously how mm-hmm. 268 draft accounts in a tasting room, how it wasn't enough. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they'd get you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right, welcome back. So like I said, I, I really wanted to get into, you did the expansion. You brought on some investors yep. to do it, obviously diluted some mm-hmm. of your equity position. Looking back now, you said that there's some mistakes you made there as far as financing piece and the equity and the control, essentially. What was it? Like, what would you recommend someone to take a look at or, and or change when they were going to do that? The first thing is taking on loans and anything like the SDA, that ended up ultimately being a total nightmare. You can't even get out of it with bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So cash in the bank and having something that you can spend and you're resourceful with was something that we really lacked. And the people that I brought in for the expansion, you know, this is a side project for them. They had money, they invested in the things. They obviously, there's a reason why they have money. They want to see money coming back. With COVID hitting, it really cut off my legs and I still had to figure out how to run a marathon. Mm-hmm. So it was like, okay, there's going to need to be more cash contributions. And that's just where it got really, really bad. What I would do if I had to do this again. And again, it's going to be different because you're not always going to have a COVID. You're always going to have problems pop up. Maybe not a global pandemic that shuts down everything. That was kind of kind of a unique, <laughs> unique thing to deal with, I think, in terms of starting a business. Just having a few months worth of expenses in the bank and keeping that full and just starting small and really building that nest egg, just don't go too fast. Like even the day that we were growing in the demand, it felt like we were going fast, but it didn't feel like it was reckless. All it took was essentially one to two small mistakes and that cost all of a sudden is detrimental. Mm-hmm. Our operating expense at the end of this was $52,000 a month. We were producing a, a ton of beer, but between the SBA loan, the loans towards the, uh, we, we bought two fermenters, packaging, kegs, just everything, payroll. When you look at that, it is a huge amount of money. And if you've rushed into that, you're paying any interest on just your simple operating expenses, and that's for a taproom and distribution. You know, usually a taproom is supposed to make money and it's supposed to be like the nice thing that keeps feeding in and then you grow from there. It just turned into chasing, you know, I was chasing my tail, trying to figure out how to rob Peter to pay Paul to cover expenses where if we just picked one direction and gone with it, it would have been a lot easier to crack. So looking back, what do you mean by that one direction down? Are, are we looking to be a destination taproom or are we looking to do live music there and 
you know, blasted out where this is going to be something. And then, yeah, if people want kegs, they can swing by and pick them up. Awesome. You're welcome to have our beer coming by it. Or are we targeting every single convenience store, every grocery store, every single bar? Do we want to be the next growing Spokane brewery where on the east side, we're doing what Fremont Brewing did over in Seattle? I, I kind of tried to go all of it in, in doing that with the costs that were associated with it. Could only make it like two years and it was a sinking ship the whole time because there were too many holes to cover with your fingers. And that was all due to just not having enough, taking on bad debt, essentially. No, COVID was real really the kick in the nuts on this. I don't know if, if COVID hadn't hit. The stuff seemed like it penciled out. It seemed really calculated, but it was running a really high risk, high reward or, you know, slow and steady on this. Margins are so tight yeah. that it's hard. Like you'd have to like really hit some big numbers to be able to, and, and keep keeping a $52,000 a month nuts, a big one too. So that's hard. Just yeah. juggling the grains and the bottles, caps, all that kind of crap. Like it, it adds up yeah. quick. You're over over half a million dollars in just operating expense in a year. That's a lot of money. And especially if with the COVID situation, without getting bailouts and having to pull that from investors, then we're talking about trying to put a value on a brewery. Try putting a value on a brewery that just finished an expansion, doesn't have any sales going out the door because it was distribution only in a ton of debt. <laughs> like, right. like, well, we have a name. We're really cool. <laughs> like it just, you know, there's a point. What what happened to me was it just it was doing CPR in a dead body for so long. There's a point where you got to pull the plug and just say this thing's not coming back. And I worked every different angle to get this thing to work. It just got to the point where there's out of resource. It wasn't just money. It was like even the creativity on it during COVID, for example. You know, we opened up our tap room. COVID hit. They cut up all the live entertainment, all the music, all that. So what I did was I took a flatbed trailer and built it into a stage and put it across the street from our tap room and ran cords across and put bands across the street, blasting music towards our garage doors. So we had live music, but it wasn't on the premise. So we couldn't get in trouble for that with the liquor control board. And then that would turn into basically block parties. I bought a uh, 1946 army truck and stuck that in front. We had two stages where it stepped up to that stage. And then I built a stage that hooked our forklift where we could lift up drummers above the stages. And we'd have multiple bands or 12-piece bands out there. But in doing all this, you know, we're outside. All the regulations that kept changing every week. It seemed like every time there was a governor announcement, something shifted. I navigated how to get past all the red tape without getting in trouble. Um, I did have two cease and desist and they threatened to pull my license. I got called, um, I had to field like four calls a week from the liquor control board. <laughs> it wasn't like I was trying to trying to piss these people off. I was just trying to run a business. I think the key was I didn't try to make a point with it. I just did these things instead of being a social media warrior and like, yeah, we're doing this and like picking a fight with a government agency is just retarded. I stayed away from all that, but we had live music like four nights a week. Everything was outside. It was a really, really cool format. Even with that, when you watch the videos, like block the street off with kegs, the city wouldn't give us permits because there was no one in the office. didn't get a call back. So we just started doing things (laughs) and, you know, pushed a lot of those boundaries where we could have easily gotten in trouble. But even with that, in a packed house, just the first one or two bad months of COVID, where everyone was scared to go out and trying to do deliveries to drop off cans of beer. You have to spray with isopropyl so that people don't get COVID. It was so ridiculous. But just that first 100 grand right there of lost income created a spiral down. And then it was capital infusions that got switched over to equity or their 8% loans, where it was just like, man, how, how are we going to feel this? How do you come back on that? Those are the 
the things that I really got from this in, in my future endeavors, at least in the beer world, be really careful with partnerships, how many partners, who I partner with. And that all comes down to your, your operating agreement and making sure that that is totally solid for when it goes bad. You have something to look at that was the agreement and things were good. Do you have something to look back at to say that you could have done differently? Because it sounds like you were sort of in a hurry. So maybe you took some guys on that you, in hindsight, knew maybe wasn't the best choice, but you didn't have a choice. I, I was pretty pretty stupid in that sense when it came to who I partnered with. Two of them were doctors. You're told never to partner with doctors. <laughs> and two of them were relatives. So those are already like two massive donos that everyone tells you not to do. And I threw it all in a bucket. Awesome. You should have gotten one attorney <laughs> in there too, just so you could fucking have the trifecta. Oh no! Instead, I got some guy, some guy who sold off a um his his company and his work. I mean, his company sold for like four billion dollars. Mm. So at that point, it's basically losses. Like when you have that kind of income, you're just managing losses. So yeah. the incentive, you know, it's just a little hobby on the side. So it's. Yeah, the the partnerships, you know, I I have one partner who's extremely good, who I worked with on a ton of different projects down in the Bay Area. He was a good partner, super, super supportive of the idea of this thing and like working towards the goals of the company. And then what it turned into was just a bunch of like, oh man, the, the partnership with other ones is really difficult to say the least impossible obviously there's some stress there are tons of stress at this point and i know in my brewery when i was experiencing the same thing when you know the beer and the entire concept was just so art driven it was very hard for me to maintain that level of passion for making exciting unique and interesting beers and pushing the envelope we haven't talked about it, we have to bring it up were you still making the pine beer at this time uh yeah so um, our brewery had gotten sponsored by steel chainsaws i was still sticking with a lot of innovative crazy things and i'm like every second i could get on the brew deck that's why i did this stuff first place yeah i'd imagine that putting a brewery to brew beer what a crazy concept <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people like, the majority of brewery owners just laugh at you it's it's so rare as a brewery owner get in a position where you're brewing the majority of the time it just doesn't happen so anytime i would uh, you know, like i would still focus on it any of the experimental beers i could do and i'd go crazy with that like i never lost the passion i still do a lot of really, really fun stuff in that department. I still brew here and there. My way of keeping the art going was I set up a lot of different collaborations with really, really well-respected breweries that had some pretty crazy people that I dealt with in positive ways. <laughs> I, I see crazy as a really positive thing. Just doing a lot of a lot of different projects where it's an isolated brew that's going to be a one-off with another company, but a crazy concept, super fun. I would focus on a lot of the collaborations and I'd always bring at least were two brewers with me whenever I did them, then any time I could open up day for a beer that I could do, I would target experimental beers. Being so close to Yakima during Fresh Hop, we'd go pretty crazy during Fresh Hop season. Our, um, our last year being open at 11 Fresh Hops, all different varieties. It's about three and a half hour drive down from where we're at. Uh, I was the only one during COVID, so I was working 110 to 120 hour weeks um, running two facilities. And so for those fresh hops, it was wild. I would um, try to layer which variety of hop was going to be harvested and drive down and pick up two batches worth. So it'd be a three-hour drive down, pick up the hops, go over to Bale Breaker, say, hey, those guys have a beer, check out what they were doing because they're living on a hop farm. Hang with them for a couple minutes, drive back, mash in, do the whole hop back to the mash ton, back to back. So it'd be a 23-hour shift with a three-hour break, then a 19-hour shift. Jeez. So I, I would ram 
a lot of those back to back and just it was getting pretty and it's it's about a five week the harvest season in this area where all these varieties are coming out and it's the first three weeks that you see a lot of the experimental hops and your big boys like the Simcoe Mosaic or Citra or any of the really fun hops that are really really large in the market most of those are crammed into a three week period so a lot of that's just management your tank schedule being able to move the stuff where you're not cutting it off too early in fermentation and watching the growth rate of a lot of these different varieties so that you can stagger and adjust based on when certain hops are going to be going what i do is uh, look at i'd be i'd be already watching what the schedules were would be more like march april when they start burning back the varieties of hops to see sort of how their harvest is going to go what they'll do is they'll, they'll burn back certain varieties to the ground while they let one grow uniformly and then a few days later let the next one go and incrementally do that so that when they go to harvest they're on one variety and moves to the next it's ready it's all due to that lupulin inside the hop I, I would be watching that schedule and figure out the top five that i really wanted to do and figure out when roughly they were going to be harvestable and then adjust the other five or six to whatever experimentals are coming in at that point or other hops that i could grab and do another like fresh hop season is when i would get the most of the brewing in in this in this area like when, once we had that expansion during the year most of my stuff was focused on the experimental stuff and then marketing and selling i was i was wearing six different hats i was doing all the books for a couple of years then we finally brought in the bookkeeper and really advise hiring a good bookkeeper and not touching that stuff unless it's your specialty <laughs> I wasted so much time in QuickBooks and trying to figure out paying six different tax entities, producing in two different states. Even though it was our product, they produced it over in northern Idaho. Crossing over to Washington, even though it's going my tap room, it's my product. The liquor control board still has an issue with that. You're, you're crossing the state lines. This is a controlled substance. We need our tax dollars on. Basically, it's all about money. In all of that, it, it just got really crazy. The management part, like brand development, sales, all the books, all the recipe development, just scheduling, running a tap room, supply chain, all of management. that, and then managing a distributor. It was just a lot for one person. I, I think that's where streamlining sort of the business goal and the idea of what you want to do is just such an important thing to focus on from the get-go and obviously make adjustments that need to be made for that goal to be reached. Don't just do these massive shifts in the middle of production and change the whole business model. That was kind of where I, I lost my one-month safety net. In the first 52,000 and went down the drain, all of a sudden you're working backwards. And then it's like, how do I catch up? It was, it was just really, really bad from my experience. And that was due to not going with the initial goal and keeping costs down. I know I've seen a lot too, is that people have that idea that they want to have multiple levels, multiple brewers, whatever, but the mm -hmm. margins wind up being so tight that until you hit scale, it, you can't afford it. You know, if, if you had hired all those people, you'd have been out of business sooner. Prior to COVID, we had ramped up and I was doing a 30 to 35 barrel batches over in Post Falls, Idaho, Southern Idaho, like the larger product facility that we were contracting on. And I brought in two other brewers. So, so initially... It was me alone, and then I brought in a home brewer, really, really good, good dude. Had him brewing with me a lot, but I was still on the production all the time. Once we got to the point of hitting distribution, it was a little bit hard to navigate running two different breweries and doing it all single-handedly. So I, I had that brewer and one other one hired and kind of rotated all three of us on the smaller system and larger system. And that, that worked out pretty well, but COVID hit right when we would have seen any of the fruits. Like it's again, it's so hard to, so hard to influence someone 
you're coming into the industry right now and trying to look out for the pitfalls that I had with that particular instance because I, I had something so astronomical happen with COVID that it's not something that you really can prepare for. It's right. just kind of like, ah, like, yep. So, I mean, there are occasionally people were walking and the telephone pole falls on their head. Like, it just happens. <laughs> but it's not something you really expect, but it could happen. That sucks. It's tough to plan ahead. I had a, you know, Nick for timing on this. It was uh, the government shutdowns in 2018, right when I had signed the lease on doing the demolition of our building and winning the contract with the contractor. And this is for our expansion. The SBA funds didn't get released because the government shut down in 2018 or 2017, December 2017. So they froze up all of the approvals on our SBA loan that I was on the hook for the project that we had started. Mm-hmm. And I signed the lease. I couldn't get the actual construction started until what it was June, I think, June of the next year. So it was a six month waiting there for a signature from the SBA. They just one nightmare after another. And it was like, you know, these things are all probably avoidable if you have money in the bank. I can't put people to work if I can't pay them. Having that sort of safety net is something that we just didn't have. And then when it got to the point where we were taking losses, it was a lot harder than one big investment for a partner and investor to throw into the pot. When it turned into funding for the operations day to day, where it's like, yeah, and uh, Two more weeks, we're probably going to need ten grand because we're still not quite opened up yet. And then it just turns into, man, I'm writing another check every couple weeks rather than one lump sum and then having something to work with. There were a lot of things that I did wrong in there that seemed like they were right at the time. I, I can't come at this from a bitter perspective and say like, oh, fuck these guys for doing what they did. They did a lot of things that I'm not really, really, I'm not a fan of them for doing. Like I'm extremely pissed off at them for doing them <laughs> into some outvoting things that eventually tanked our tanked our company and being outvoted on something that you know i, I have years in this industry at this point at that point where where we're trying to figure out directions right it would be like this is what we need to do then i get outvoted on doing that because it's it's like a tweak on what we're doing you might actually open up a gate for us and then four weeks later when whatever it is that they shifted and voted on doesn't work they come back and they're like well maybe we should do this and they try to credit what i said a month like it just turned into circular movement that wasn't progressive. So um, again, the, the partnership aspect is what I really, really would encourage someone to be extremely careful with when they're going into this, especially with an expansion. Yeah. Yeah. I interview people that uh, had bad, bad ends in the most part, but the ones that have had partners, that's usually the answer they get. So there, there is simple luck. I mean, it's not dumb luck. The harder you train, the luckier you get is a saying that always kept in my head during this. Like the harder you're working on the stuff and developing it, something's going to turn if you keep trying every angle. You see some of these larger breweries that are larger now. Um, they managed to get the distributors to pay for a lot of their expansion costs, mm-hmm. even though that's totally illegal in the States, like aid from distributor for a certain brand they look at it as. It's completely illegal in, in the industry, but there's ways around it. That's something that I would have explored a lot heavier had we looked at a distributor before our expansion, because if I could have locked in with them and they would have covered, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars of bought us a canning line, we would have had a way better shot at the distribution world. We had a small window there where there was a lot of demand. The only problem is we were a new brewery at that point. And that doesn't really hold the foundation that you need for a distributor to come to the table. Yeah, there's still a lot of other breweries for them to look at. Well, let's get into like, what the end looked like. How you, what, did you have a part in a lot yep. of stuff? But let's, uh, let's take a quick break first. When we come right back, we will talk about all sure. that. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. 
and SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You got a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. If he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine, keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts, but it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better, more professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business, and her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. All right, welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment, and this is where we're going to talk a little bit about like how you did it and how it went down. So every brewery kind of has their own opinion on this one. Some, very few, will plan four to five weeks out. Some will say, hey, this is our last weekend, and some will never say anything and just disappear. So how did you break the news? Well, let's let's actually back that up a little bit. How did you finally decide, fuck this, this has got to end? Um, well, in my case, I, I'm not one that quit, and I, I just will keep going no matter what. Like, basically, you got to kill me, and that's essentially what happened. I got killed in this. I got outvoted. The funding got pulled, and we we're in the middle of getting ready to launch two other states. So mm. I was already, I was on the road and set things with distributors. We were ready to launch that. We had canning going. We just invested a ton of resource into using mobile canners to get the product on the shelves and see if it worked. It seemed to be working up here. Everywhere that I took it, they were really, really ready for it. We were at the point, flown down to Durango, Colorado, looked at launching that. We had Boise, Idaho, Portland. I wanted to work up and I had the Bay Area kind of locked. I hadn't talked to a distributor in the Bay Area yet, but I have enough connections down there. And the goal was to start up in Spokane, drop down lower, and then work our way back up. So it would have been three states as of last March is where I was targeting. And that would have been Idaho, Washington, Oregon. Not hitting the Seattle market, even though we have a ton of demand over there because a lot of the people in Seattle knew us. But working up that direction, just there's a lot of breweries over in that area right now. Mm. And it was at the point where the cost of bringing sand to the beach didn't really make too much sense. That door would open as breweries started falling off. Because after a couple of weeks of COVID, everyone knew that there was going to be a huge fallout of small companies and breweries. It was like, well, let's see who, who lives through this one. This is going to be, <laughs> this is going to be hell. And it's still like, we're just getting to the point where we're starting to see them finally really start dropping. Two years later, um, it's crazy. Two, well, two years, everyone did what they could to survive and yeah. they just enough to keep living, whether it was a PVP or uh, another grant. And it's like, oh yeah, cool. We can almost, it's just like dangling that carrot. 
tired. Now it's getting to the point where people are too tired. I was down in Denver, down at Red Rocks for a show last year, and I went into some of the breweries that um that I'd done collaborations with. Man, it's like all the same people, but they just look so dang tired. They didn't look <laughs> as happy. they didn't look as happy as you know when we kicked it before before any of this stuff happened. It looks like they just got thrown through it. Oh man, just torn up. Yeah, they're just they're just exhausted, and you got you you can't blame anyone for that. This was. This is really rough, but it's really hard on the small business owner because they're the ones trying to fund this and keep everyone spirit up while just completely getting divorced. You know, I lost it. was essentially 700 grand down the drain and the house. <laughs> That's just getting your ass kicked. I'll rebuild it. Like you can take away the tools, but the artist is still there, like can do it. But it's just like, fuck, man, there was not much I could do about this situation. But um, our downfall, so we were already having to get capital contributions where partners were putting money in and they're doing it on an 8% loan to leverage where they could pull in more percentage by not doing that. So it's like mm. either give me more percentage or give me interest. Giving you an interest it's loan like, that you, yeah, you couldn't you're, pay. No, you didn't have to. It, what, what I was saying the whole time is you realize that you know, you're fucking yourself by doing this. You already have money tied up in here. You're asking for more money when you see that we're needing money and it's just like double dipping on something where ultimately, you know, I lose a lot of work and whatever I've collateralized and whatever, whatever I've put into this, but they're guaranteed to lose the money that they put in because that's all they, they see that as a value. Mm-hmm. It's just money that they're flushing down the toilet at that point. You can liquidate the assets, yeah. but not worth shit by comparison to a successful business. Oh, and, and I, did, I, saw, I saw zero from all that. That went to servicing SBA, then it got distributed, distributed to the partners and I'm still pretty pissed that this happened. It, you know, there wasn't much to distribute. We were negative on the SBA loan, even with the sale. So people had to come out of pocket and pay off the SBA. Of the money that came in after that, it got split to people that had loaned to the company. So we, we basically just got eaten up completely. Yeah. And the people that tried to dictate how to how to run this business from the back seat ended up really just losing their asses on that. But they had other incomes. This wasn't their day-to-day thing. Like what what really ultimately the way the way it happened for us, we were working on canning. I'd just done three different can runs. We had a bunch of pallets go out to stores. Everything was selling, but there wasn't a margin. There wasn't money coming in. We were ready. We had beer and tanks ready to go the next canning run, ready to launch and push into the larger stores. I had just gotten approved on our Albertson lines, Safeway lines, uh, Super One, which is an, another big store up here, but all the larger grocery stores where we could get SKUs and we'd have forward-facing cans. This wasn't independent grocery stores. These were you know, long, you know, it took, two, three months to get to the point that we were guaranteed X amount of SKUs at whichever stores. It took a ton of work in there. That's what I was told to focus on at that point because it looked like if we hit this side of distribution, we have a positive flow possibly. And that justifies getting a canning line and trying to go that route. So in the two months that I was focusing on that, our wholesale fell off on on on-premise. And the investors that are sitting in the back wanting to see this thing turn around strictly just because they have money tied up in it. They see our wholesale dip and they pull the plug on any capital. Like they didn't finish putting in the commitment that they said when they said, go target these or off-premise stores. They gave like a six month window. They funded one month and they wouldn't put money. And so all the energy just got flushed down the toilet and it turned into basically making an announcement on social media. We were closing in a week and that everything was a dollar in this place. So pints were a dollar, growler pills were a dollar, crawlers are a dollar, every shirts, 
everything. Just, was that your decision? Uh, the dollar thing? No, that's um, that's pretty funny. My my best friend is calling me right this second. <laughs> He's the one who I put in charge of the tap room and mm-hmm. hired him on as the, the, the GM of that side of it. It was him that did that because it was like, well, we're pulling the plug. I mean, it was a conversation, obviously, but that, that just seemed like a good solution. Um, I loved my employees, the front of the house and everyone that we had. They were really good workers. They really cared for all of this. It wasn't it wasn't just like paid labor. So in order to give them as much as much as they could get out of that last week, because it was such an abrupt like, yeah, I guess I guess all the money's gone now. I wanted to make sure that if someone came in and had five beers and paid five dollars, they were going to tip, you know, forty mm-hmm. bucks or whatever, and take care of these. You know, so each one of those nights, there was two to three bartenders behind, and they they were each walking with like over a thousand bucks in tips from those days. And we had line out the door wrapped around the building. Like it was just mayhem in there. You gave it a week on social media is when, what everybody knew. We said starting tomorrow, everything's a dollar. And we gave them a hard closing date, which was a week from then. I saw the news, co- like one of the local newscasters did a story about it. And the, the place was fucking yep. bad. Oh, just it was, I mean, it was like drinking out of a fire hose, seriously, like for our bartenders just trying to keep up. And then you got like the leeches who you got out. That was kind of the thing. I, I didn't even go in there. It wasn't like I was in there celebrating and kicking it. I had to go in there a couple of the nights to hang out. I was still going to run into all these people around here. But what, it would piss me off like going in there and seeing some like 63-year-old dude walking in with like 10 growlers that I've never even seen in the brewery. It's like, fuck you. Take advantage of like, the you're, you're getting, you really want, you want a dollar, Phil? Here you are. You want to borrow a growler, asshole? Like, fuck you. Um, that that yeah. was the only thing that was just kind of irritating because it's like, man, there's so many freaking leeches out there that just want to take. Those weren't the people I was doing this for. There's more of the people that were, were patrons or in, in the beer industry. And a lot of that also, like, of the people that came in to, to throw money at the bartenders and have some beers or whatever and kick it, it was a really awesome establishment. We stayed pretty busy most of the time. We always had live music going. We had, you know, so we had all these things going. But in doing that, I could get into quick conversations with people that might want to buy the place. And that's where the initial part of like, yep, we got to sell. This is what's going on. I didn't even have the real conversations about something until after we had closed. Our books were horrible in the sense that we had COVID and operating expense that was out the ass. Yeah. Where we couldn't show any profit. So there's no value to it. It's like, why even like, yeah, hey, you want to spend eight hundred thousand dollars on a brewery that's worth negative money it didn't didn't make any sense so it was kind of like i wanted to file bankruptcy on this and just do it but two of the other partners didn't want to go that route due to whatever other is that they had on things that was like look you know we, we still would be on the hook for the sba loan i i don't try to avoid debts especially any smaller companies i'm not looking to screw anyone over it was literally at the point where i was like we have nothing like nothing left. I can't pay these things back. Like, what do you do? That's and, uh, supposed to be just, the point of bankruptcy. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, I was just trying to trying to streamline what was going on because it it was at that point. I don't know. I mean, it was it was a crazy last week, and then just disassembling whatever was in there was just another part of it. It was like, man, this is a lot of crazy crazy art. This whole project kind of had to had to go through it. It's kind of like burying your body. You have. Uh... <laughs> Kind of like a, a roller coaster of emotions. Was it you know anger one day, sadness another day? Like what was what was the whole experience like of that last week? You know, I for me there, there were a lot of things that kind of happened in there. Um, so COVID took a toll on my marriage and the family, all that. I sent them overseas just so the kids would learn different languages and cultures and stuff. And I dropped them over there into different spots where I found 
apartments and I'd fund everything from this side. Over there, my ex-wife converted to Islam and ended up hooking up with some Muslim dudes and now is Muslim and I have the kids six days a week. It's pretty wild. That's different. Um, but so when I got them back, right before all this stuff happened, that marriage had fallen apart, essentially. Everything was on a loss. Everything was going. So I wouldn't say there was a roller coaster of emotions. There was like a fuck it mentality. Um, I, I wasn't angry in the sense where I wanted to beat the shit out of anyone. I think that that emotion probably could have been easily exposed if someone rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. So I'm glad that no one did. I've never really been a loose cannon like that, but if there's any time to be, that's understandable on that one if you're losing hundreds of thousands of dollars in your house and marriage and everything. Oh, um, your dream job, so that, that all, Yeah, so, it, you know, honestly, in, in retrospect at this point, the day-to-day stress during COVID and going into that, the loss of all this stuff was pretty dang unhealthy with the amount that I was working and everything, like the lack of family life. It, it was just... It was just so off balance. Right now, just having to resurface and figure out what direction to go, even if it is like in the beer industry and creating a new brewery from scratch 100% again, that puts me in a better better headspace than where I was at just constantly having to argue with investors on how to sustain you know, 15 people's income while we're just getting our ass kicked by fully uncontrolled bad debt. I wouldn't say that there was a roller coaster of emotions because there wasn't there wasn't too many for super positive emotions in there. The guy who I uh, fabricated the tanks with hung himself in the place where he built the tanks. So I'd look at those and I'd be like, oh, man, that's rough. And then I'd look at the brewery, the tap room, and I was like, oh, man, that's rough. Like everything, everything that I was looking at was like, fuck, I just lost all this. So in a lot of ways, it was like, it wasn't like being released or like freed from something. It wasn't like a positive thing. It was just like, man, this has kind of been poisonous for a while but our the the beer was fucking fantastic and amazing and like at no point had, had the beer dropped off in quality or innovation or creativity like when we announced that within within the first 30 minutes of dropping that social media announcement i had 431 text messages come into my phone i just turned my phone off and so it was like People didn't see it coming there was no indication that there was any struggling so i i didn't have too much trouble saving face on like before all this stuff happened no one had any idea that there was that much stress or anything going on i think at this point looking back at it it was like man that that was just being faced with a lot of impossibilities just a lot of things that needed certain tools that i was expected to do without the tools mm-hmm. so i'm i'm happier in the position i'm right now if we came back and did the show in maybe four or five years where i redone this different way i might have a lot more insight on what really does work these applications from what i've learned from it was it worth it absolutely not um like i feel like there's a lot easier ways to gain that knowledge (laughs) whatever listen to this podcast (laughs) that's supposed to be the point one of my my, my favorite saying during all that was um they said cheer up things can get worse so i cheered up and things got worse it worked out that way how long has it been since you closed uh so we closed it's it's a year i think like last week february 6th what does that year look like did you kind of like hide out are you now looking to move forward Uh, so i'm where are you? I help out at the brewery that I was doing the production stuff at. He's mm. he's short on, on brewers, so I jump in and I do stuff. I'm building some of a brewery over in Bremerton, which is so I'm consulting on that. I just brought a 15-barrel system over there, and I'm 
doing the install and everything on that. I'm teaching fermentation sciences up at Whitworth College in Spokane. That kicks in next month. Really looking forward to that. It's um, advanced fermentation. And the thing that's cool is with all the connections that they have, just all the connections in the beer industry, between internships and connections for people coming out of that program that want to get a job in the beer industry, I have a huge resource there. So these people can ask really practical questions or complicated questions about the industry. And I have insight because I did have to wear the hat on every single side of this between building a brewery, running a brewery, distribution, boys, all that. So it's um currently the way I'm sort of staying relevant is through through those side projects. But just um took a break from the beer industry as a whole just to kind of recalibrate, reset my brain and uh, switched over to doing chainsaw work and climbing trees. Um, I get to look at something beautiful every day and totally destroy it. So it's kind of, <laughs> kind of therapeutic. <laughs> Sound like the beer industry. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, at least in my experience, I'm getting good at destroying things. <laughs> yeah, well, mine too. So don't forget, but I'm, I'm uh, not immune to it. So. <laughs> the art of destruction. Hey, maybe I should just go into demoing. Yeah, no shit. With the selling of the assets <laughs> mm-hmm. and all the stuff with the different parts of the brewery, what happened to the name? Does anybody have the name Hidden Mother anymore? Uh, no, I was going to hold the, the name and the LLC and everything. I, I didn't. I don't think anyone's going to take it, but they can. <laughs> well, my next question would be, would you na- name it again that if you were going to start back over, would you use the name? Possibly. That's um. I did a lot of groundwork with this brand and there is a value to that. Considering no one bought the name from us or took the name, like no one bought the rights to it or whatever. And I still do have, do have all the legal rights on it. It would be a super easy way to get recognition right out of the gates again if I resurfaced. That's all if and when at this point i'll probably protect that name and use the llc for a different like i'm I'm getting my contractor's license this month for doing the tree work and i may hold on to that llc and just do a change of use just to hold that name but i also kind of want to just bury this one and get rid of the partners and not have to deal with them at all and if the name's still available in a couple years i'll use it Right. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, I just kind of want to say, fuck it, move on. Like, um, it's too bad because the branding, the branding was really well done. It was, um, the, the goal and the focus, I, the niche I picked was trying to be a wild, there were multiple ways to market on this. I wanted to market the female audience in a way that was approachable by men because 51% of the population at that point were women. 82% of the sales at grocery store were women as well. And no one was really doing it. Like you saw different different brands that would market lightly towards women. I think uh, the example I've used in the past was um, uh, Goose Island. They're Sophie, mm. where it's like, that's a recognizable you know, black and white format with Sophie written in cursive. When you look at that, it's a super easy format to see. Simplicity is the hardest thing to invent. But when you stick that up, there's just like an elegance to it where it's not female, but it's statistically stand out like if someone's wife goes in to buy them a nice bottle of beer you know that that sort of target so i i tried to work with a lot of those angles with our brand and uh just playing off the yeast cell the, the mother yeast and all the different applications with wild yeast like there's there's a lot of different ways to market this i just think with the way this kind of went down i could use it i don't think it would bring bad association to me in the sense of like my experience i'm obviously gonna not be in the same situation with the same partners and all the same pitfalls that were the problem. Are you sure? I'm sure you still have the phone numbers if you want to call them and try to get the next project going. Oh, I'm, I'm sure I, I may do that just because I tend to be a sarcastic piece of shit every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Hey guys, how's it going? 
want to invest. There's no bad association for me. And I just don't know if positive outright outweigh the negatives. Sure. It may be good just to just, you know, that band-aid's already ripped. Maybe just call it good and go on to the next thing. I'm just not sure. There are still so many people that reach out about the hidden mother. And that's kind of something that I figured would be like forgotten within a month. But there's like still actively people trying to get certain things from the, the branding was, was done really well and it was taken off. I guess there is there's an incentive to reuse it. I just, I don't know. I, I'm still on, on my one year of recalibrating. Yeah, too early to tell. So rarely yeah. do I interview people who have gone through the process that are entertaining the idea of opening another brewery. Overall, yeah. where the industry sits, the, the growth, the like obsessive bubble that we're in, I'm just curious where you see a niche for profitability overall. Man, that's a that's a little that's a pretty difficult question because of just all the factors that go into it. Like when you look at location, sort of your population density, and sort of what your target is. Um, going back to sort of what I was saying earlier with picking a direction and sticking with it, you know that that has a lot to do with what your business plan is going to be and how you sort of implement it, and just the importance of looking at that format and not changing it too much. If I were to do it again up here, I would I would start. And again, this is going from a different situation because I have a reputation up here now. A lot of people know me. If I open a place tomorrow, I would have a built-in customer base to automatically make the immediate association with the projects that I've done around here. Mm-hmm. And there'd be people in there. So it's different than just, I'm a homer. I really want to start a brewery. You know, it's, it's a completely different application. But what, what I would do is just figure out anything that generates income. doesn't matter how small it is, but it generates rather than losing money in building. The way I kind of saw this initially was, you know, we're losing money monthly, but as we're climbing, those lines are going to cross and the money that we make is going to be a lot more on a monthly basis. We just need to sustain, keep drawing that profit margin in to the point where it's all income rather than closing the gap of losses. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were a lot of indications that that would work, but there's also a lot of debt associated with that. I think I think if I were to do it, I would just do... I'm not a huge fan of doing super, super nano breweries, but I still consider like a seven barrel or a 10 barrel system a nano brewery pretty much at this point. I think it's micro at that point. I would probably just jump on like a seven barrel system and do something where it's a tap room, generate income, and then contract on someone else's existing system uh, just so you can avoid the cost of infrastructure. And with with the amount of empty tanks out there and the amount that people have put into this and the amount of people going under, there's absolutely no reason to go out and buy a bunch of new equipment and rebuild a brew in my head. Like that just seems like an unnecessary cost. Yeah, I think for me, I'm leaning more and more as I'm doing this towards the contract model being the one that kind of makes the most sense, or at least for the bulk of your production. Uh, you can still have a small system and make some unique and cool shit, but for just replicatability, consistency, like the big systems make sense. And anybody putting in a 30 barrel system today is a fucking idiot, like in my opinion. I'm I'm with you. I mean, it's if you got $5 million that you need to park somewhere and you want to put a 30 barrel system in with 120 barrel fermenters and you have a huge warehouse and you have a canning line, like sure, go for it. Buy make, a titty bar. Make it should sure. be way more fun. <laughs> God, yeah, yeah seriously. I mean, dude, it's, you know, I, I don't know the whole history that you have on doing this. I know that you you lost a brewery also it's um the margins on this stuff it's another one that people that aren't in the beer industry they think oh wow that's like everyone wants beer there's going to be so much money in it and they're just not doing the math properly it's like wait that beer only costs 15 cents to produce and you're selling it for seven dollars it's like pretty money and it's like 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things it. between 15 cents yeah, and seven bucks. You're, missing, you're <laughs> completely missing this. Like, yeah. we were looking at numbers the other week over at uh, Sucker Cabbie Brewing. His cost on making beer, like his margin coming in, it was so much less than buying a keg from a distributor, which I was trying to make sense of that. That goes against everything. Like if you're able to produce the stuff, you have everything paid just in cost and everything, you should be able to get a better margin otherwise you're doing something wrong. He spelled everything out for me and showed me all of his expenses and everything. And it was like, fuck, just buy a $200 cake from a distributor. I did that math in my book, actually, as part of like my argument for myself, because I had done this when I was facing a shutdown. And I was like, well, we didn't have guest beer. Well, should we do it? And I, I did the comparison. And I'm like, not only are the margins slightly better, I think that that Pilsner would probably sell faster than my sour barrel-aged blonde. So ultimately, yeah, I'd make more money. <laughs> Isn't that isn't that just insane? That's um, I have advised that to a lot of people. Um, the person that I'm consulting for right now, one of the things like she really wants to do a brewery, all these things, and it's like it's not it's not as much like it's not going to be what you think it is. Massive emphasis on getting your tavern open and get guest handles in there right away and start mm-hmm. making sales. And it's it's crazy. Like even fresh hops. So we were um we were you know one of four breweries that were on that experimental yard and. In Yakima, the Carpenter Ranches, it's the whole HBC program. So a uh, hop union, YCH, this whole group, it's a series of farmers. And the HBC program, the, the hop breeders down there, th- this yard is where they're created. Mm-hmm. They're on one acre parcels, and they're really, really selective on who they who they have. So it was, it was us, Russian River, Bailbreaker, and Stone on this particular block. And so um, we had access to all these things, and we were using them and sending them back to YCH all the details, everything from alkalinity and pH your water, where you sourced your grain from, everything, every step, like every single thing detailed. They take it back to their lab and they see how this hop that's not even not even named, it's still a number, how it performs in these applications. Do we like it? Do they like the way it's performing? You know, it starts taking off. They do 30 acres of it and start bleeding it out into the industry. And from there, boom, you have a hop. They name it at that point. We were doing these things and getting getting these number hops just kicking ass with them but during our fresh hop festival i did all fresh hops on all 24 of our taps except for one handle which it was a habanero cider from thin river which is the best cidery here in washington mm-hmm. and i had that just sort of as a palate cleanser and also my bartenders love that stuff like when they were getting killed railed they could just take a small half pint of habanero cider and pound it in the back and sort of recalibrate and come back out. So we had that one handle. The rest were, you know, we had our 10 or 11 fresh hops and then some guest handles. And just how quickly other breweries' beers would move. In in our instance, we were really known for that stuff. Yeah. And we had really, really solid fresh hop beers. It was just super, super fun. Like our stuff flew, but it was always pretty impressive when you'd see a face that you'd never seen in your tap room ever. Who knows? Maybe they had a bad experience with their beer, but I, I don't think that was necessarily the case based on sort of how infrequently this happened. But it was so crazy when, when people would walk in and the first thing they look at is the guest handles and something that's familiar rather than trying something that, that is new and even made in the house. Like it was interesting how those guest handles always would move. Like during the year, if we had empty slot film with guest handles and they're always really, really good beers from good breweries and they would move really fast. And it was like, man, this is a hell of a lot cheaper than 
everything that went into this infrastructure. Why the fuck didn't they just open a tap room? And simpler. You call a distributor, they drop the whole keg off, you hook it up, and it's good to go. But yeah. If you have a problem, you call the distributor, and you're like, hey, I need a new handle. I can't figure this out. They just bring you one. Yeah. Or the beer's not good. <laughs> like, hey, bro, this keg's fucked up. Give me a different one. They'll just replace it. You don't have to brew a new batch. Like, it's great. Hey, you know, someone, I got I got two complaints on this. Can you swap the keg? And someone, this Tripel, yeah, they thought it was a triple IPA, so uh, can I get a different beer? Yeah, I saw that on the Untapped. First time ordering an IPA is a Trapel. You're gonna be pretty disappointed. That's so great. Yeah, <laughs> they, they loved it. Four stars. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. I definitely appreciate what you shared on the show. There's a lot to unpack there. I I really try, like, I hate to be negative in these aspects. What people really, really do overlook, though, a lot of times is the danger of toxic positivity, where you try to sugarcoat shit and try to make, like, oh, there's silver lining on this stuff. And really, like, at some point, you got to look at this stuff. And for the sake of other people avoiding pitfalls or just really shitty situations in the future, you kind of got to just shoot straight how it is, even if it doesn't sound nice. I don't mean to sound like I'm complaining over here, and by no means am I trying to come off that way. And the fact that we did just get fucking torn up and ruined, I lost a lot. I'm not asking for pity, but my GoFundMe is going to be... No, I'm joking. It's something that you, you have to look at this stuff and be honest with yourself with it. If any of you listeners out there are kicking into this world of the beer industry and you start going down one of these paths of like mass loss, try to confront it as fast as possible and not expect to turn around and look at people who have actually gone through it and talk to them. Like, yeah, I just, I wish the best for anyone that, that is going into this industry. And I just hope there's no false expectations on what this, what this industry can do to you. Well, that's the entire point of the podcast. So I hope that uh, that's the message that we get out. That it's not that you shouldn't open a brewery, but I'm trying to at least show the other side of the industry that no one else seems willing to talk about. So I know that's not always easy at times. So I appreciate you being able to share that on your side. And obviously, it was a traumatic story in some ways. So it's also great in some ways, too. When people would say, man, I hope you don't drink your profits or whatever, I kind of want to slap them and be like, what profits, asshole? <laughs> I'm trying to get a fucking paycheck with my drinks. Yeah. Are, you fucking serious? <laughs> Are you available for consulting if somebody wants to hire you? Should I uh, have them oh, reach yeah. out to me? Yeah, absolutely. And I do have I do have a pretty, as far as my track record does go, I do have a clean track record on the breweries that I have worked with. When I was at Paradise Creek, tripled the production amount and got a larger system in while I was there. Um, I was the sole brewer and I, I kind of turned it around on the production side. Had that thing rocking. And this is my fifth brewery that I'm, I'm building right now over in Seattle. And I built three different breweries, you know, not counting the homebrew, but the one up in up in Liberty Lake where I was doing the full estate beers. The one down at the expansion, I did a lot of the work on, on that system. And it, it is just a flawless, beautiful, beautiful setup down there. And it built a lot of, I've helped out with a lot of breweries. I'm super happy to help anyone out out there that has any questions. Um, feel free to reach out to me at any point. The hidden mother at gmail.com or maybe reach out to the podcast. I'm 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 an open book for any of my experiences. If there's any way for me to help, I'm super happy to to give my two cents. Yeah, I'll definitely put yeah. them your way. So if you can reach out to me. Again, uh, thanks for everything. Hopefully yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it. Good luck. Thanks for hanging in, dudes and dudettes. I truly hope this podcast adds value to your life as much as to your career. I hope it's opened your eyes, your heart, and even your mind. I hope you're readied and steadied for the rocky road that lies ahead of you. By now you know you're going to need some salt in your margarita if you hope to have enough grit to finish the round. So here's the double salt in the rim of life, motherfuckers. I mentioned earlier the book I wrote in 2019 and revised the hell out of 2020. 
It has 55,000 words available on Amazon and a fantastic way to support the show. You can also share your favorite episode with friends and foes. That shit helps way more than you might know. Plus, every purchase you make from one of my sponsors directly helps keep me in business. And if you're feeling really squirrely, there's a link in the show notes for how to support the show with a direct donation. But most of all, I appreciate your support by coming back, learning something valuable, and spreading the message to the rest of the world. You are part of the craft beer revolution that will keep the business part strong enough to keep the fermentation part flowing. And I, for one, love the absolute fuck out of each of you. So thanks for being a listener, and I look forward to meeting you all one day. Free play. Media. Media.